Hey everybody, welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot that we are finally getting to record after AWS really stopped working for everyone everywhere, which was really fun. Somebody unplugged it. Unplugged the cloud for that. I don't know what happened, but I'm guessing a lot of stock is going down in every company that runs on AWS today. But anyway, oops. as always, I am Robbie Wagner, and this is Charles William Carpenter the third, and we work at ShipShape, and we make podcasts for fun. Today, we have this thing that Chuck has probably already drank most of his. <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to say. Only about a third, um, maybe? I don't know. Uh, leave it here at the office. I don't drink at the office yeah, too often. I only do for this, although you can kind of see. I don't know how my video looks. You see the cabinet over there? That's my new bar, so I can put all of our hundreds of whiskeys in there as we accumulate them. <laughs> Once we accumulate all the hundreds. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking for people that listen to this podcast, if anyone is nearby and wants to just come have some whiskey, like we have a bunch I need to get rid of. So <laughs> there you go. So yes, today we have the Pinhook uh, Straight Rye Whiskey. This particular, it's a four year and uh, oh, uh, selected by Total Wine Arizona. So it's actually a barrel pick, which is kind of cool. Tis Rye Time is the one that we have, which is a 95% rye and what is it? 5% malted barley. Is this a real horse name? Tis Rye Time? I don't think so. I have no idea. You know, I can't say I know that much about this uh, particular. I've seen these bottles a lot of times. They have a nice wax top, which seems fancy, and I've wanted to try them, but haven't. So I don't know a lot about it. I know that it is a sourced uh, one, so I think it believe it comes out of Indiana, MGP. For any previous listeners who have heard me uh, lament forgetting to bring a proper glass in and using a coffee cup, I have rectified that now and have the Norland again so that I and immediately taste. breaks it. Yeah, that's probably going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Hand dropped. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'm getting, I want to say a little bit of like apple pie kind of, like an apple crumble really more. I would say like, like a soury apple, like a Granny Smith apple. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of sour notes. Yeah. It's got a little sour and a little bit of like a cinnamony thing. So it makes me think of apple crumble. Hmm. It has been a while since I tried this one independently, so I feel more objective now. Yeah, I mean, I don't get the spicy rye notes until, like, way at the end. So it's like, yeah, it is kind of bright, sour, apple-y. And yeah. then, like, ten seconds later, it's you get the classic rye spice. Yeah, yeah, right at the, the finish. Yeah, this is, this is different. It's enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, I would say this is kind of similar to, like, the fact where we had the the boss hog and we thought it wasn't, you know, something you could drink a ton of cause it's, it's very interesting, but not like, you know, the most drinkable thing. Yeah. I'd say this is in a similar category. Like I enjoy it. It's interesting. I wouldn't want to drink the whole bottle at once. Yeah. Yeah. I can see where it would pile up on you after a little bit, one or two, and then you're kind of, okay, this is fine. Yeah. I guess in the vein of like an apple crumble kind of dessert, I can't eat a ton of desserts either. I get my little fill. I'm good. Yeah. It is pretty good though. I would uh, give it a six, I think. Six tentacles. Yeah, I'm feeling six as well. Yeah, it's good. I'd have it again. I wouldn't like rave about it forever or anything of that nature. So now... Uh, a neat little thing I noticed on the back. So it says a uh, vintage one of nine in the true single barrel vertical series, which follows a group of barrels as they age from four to 12 years old. It has a QR code on there and says that this is a, this label is interactive. Get the Pinhook AR app. Let's try this out real time. All right. What could go wrong? Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's, I guess this isn't dependent on AWS services, so this should be fine. Well, if it is, then... <laughs> it's not going to work. It's not going to go well. Every year, Pinhook releases a new bourbon and rye, each connected to a some other words that they got rid of. So here I am, AR. Please hold in front of the label. Okay. You found a bottle of Tis Rye Time, and that is correct. You mean a QR code worked? 
Yeah. And then it tells me the proof, which I know that. So the Noli Novak did the illustration. It's famous for creating uh, Wall Street Journal drawings. Hmm. Uh, horse name. Yeah, thoroughbred horses are often named for their sire or mare. Other owners name around a theme such as movies, songs, or cities. The name of every pinhook horse includes the word bourbon or rye. So, I, yeah, I think they kind of invented this whole horse and name setup. I don't believe it's So, real. it's some rich horse guys who were like, hey, should we just also make some whiskey? Or did it go the other way around? I think it went the other way around. They made whiskey first? Yeah. Hmm. Well, either way, not not some bad guys to be associated with. Right. And and the, the app works. If anybody goes into this, you can do a little AR for the app. Alrighty. That's my info on that interactivity. Yeah, not bad. Uh, nice bottle. Interesting experience. Tasty after dinner drink. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> so, yeah. Today for our web and whatnot general things, we decided to do some origin story episodes. So today is going to be about me and next time will be about Chuck. And we're just going to go through like a history of how I got into web development, jobs I've had, that kind of stuff. So yeah. don't really know how it's going to go. I have like a couple notes, but we'll see. Feel free to skip ahead to the next episode um, if it happens to be published. <laughs> I'm uh I'm not making any promises on this one. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess my first real like digital work in general, uh, I was doing like some Photoshop stuff. Uh, I was in several bands and stuff in high school and like having a need for merch and uh, logos and whatnot. It's like, hey, I should check out some Photoshop and it was kind of the the hot, cool thing to play with at the time as well. So I, I played with that some. And then like, I think um, some guy that I knew was just like, hey, have you like ever tried div overlays on MySpace? And I was like, "I what are these words you're saying to me? Like, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And he told me all about how you can like make a, a Photoshop like image, slice it into slices and like, basically just replace your entire MySpace with that and then like move the stuff around to fit in the boxes, which is just crazy. Like you could never do anything like that. Like, like, Oh, I want a Facebook that looks the way I want. And let me just move like the comments and stuff around like that's not going to work. So yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy times. Um, but like did all of that. And then inevitably all of the slices would not fit perfectly together, which I think you did some Photoshop too, right? Chuck? Yeah, I did. I, but I actually too far into your origin story. Yeah, yeah. We gotta we gotta leave some secrets there. But I I uh I took a lot of photo courses. So in the transition from regular film to digital, I picked up some Photoshop. So like as you were designing things, did you notice the same thing that if you tried to make a big thing of slices, they would be off by like a couple pixels between the slices sometimes? Yeah, it's the bane of all early web development existence because it was all layouts and tables and then nested tables within cells of other tables and and basically uh, turning these slices into uh, bits in those tables. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had lots of trouble, like, getting it all to fit. And I guess also... At that time, no one was really thinking about responsive design. So like you would design it for your typical viewport. And then if it were bigger or smaller, it would just be like, no. Yep. Horrible. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So that was fun. And yeah, I uh, continued to do designs and stuff. Like did some of those MySpaces for some other bands. Uh, did a lot of apparel stuff, actually, and had a clothing company of my own which I actually didn't make the designs for ironically, but I made (laughs) designs for everyone else and then hired a professional to do the apparel designs. Hmm. Yeah. It was called God wears Gucci, like a play on the devil wears Prada. Oh, so okay. Yeah. Is there any of that to be picked up these days? I mean, where, where does that live? Um, I may have a couple extra shirts or something, but honestly, pretty much all of them that I've made, uh, my dad just takes the extras of like, he doesn't wear any clothes that like 
he bought anywhere. He only wears stuff that I've made for like bands and companies. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, maybe I'll get some pictures of him and you can see what the, the shirts look like. Yeah. I think that's a must. You got to post that on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I just did all that for a while and then like, I guess went to college at Virginia tech and stopped doing any web stuff at all, unfortunately, because like I, I'm hoping it got, has gotten better these days, but the computer science program was just like, no, like computer science is Java and C and like, you know, computing heavy languages. Like the web is not important. It's just for like looking up stuff on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, they were preparing you for a good bank job. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we learned a lot of like stuff that I really never have used. Uh, it was kind of fun to learn. Like we had to build our own shell and like did a bunch of like uh, GDB stuff, like GNU debugger or whatever, where mm. you like step through like C code. And there was like this project where you had to not make a bomb go off. And like <laughs> you had 10 tries and like, if you didn't put enough debuggers in, it would just, you know, loop through 10 times and you would get like a zero on the project. So it was really about like making sure you did all that right. Mm. Yeah, and did like some assembly and like a bunch of crap that like no one knows how to do because even JavaScript just compiles to WebAssembly now. Like no one knows how to write assembly itself. Yeah, that's pretty much true. I guess I had one web class. Like we had a capstone class that talked a little bit about web stuff and we like made this thing where, what did it even do? <laughs> I think it was like a database for searching documents in like Arabic or something. Okay. Like, cause it was hard. Cause it wasn't like, you know, ABCD. And we, cause we had to do, we were doing something with like a middle Eastern country. They had like a server there and we had a server at school and like did some kind of stuff back and forth. I really forget a lot of the details because we never finished the project <laughs> because <laughs> somebody hacked the server and deleted everything. Oh man. Yeah. It was, it was nuts. Like I think people, you know, being at a college that does like computing research stuff, I don't know. They were just trying to find anything that was vulnerable and being college students who were given a machine, we didn't know how to lock stuff down. Like right. it's like, yeah, whatever. And yeah, it got hacked and everything got deleted. So yeah, that was fun. And you still passed that class, huh? Well, I mean, most classes like like those classes where you had to build a shell and stuff, you would get like a 34 on an exam and you would have like an A plus. Like hmm. everyone did really badly. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, move on, move it on. Still fine. Yeah. I mean, I think we all learned what we needed to learn. It was just like stuff was excessively hard and they knew that. But yeah, past everything. Um, towards the end of school, I ended up working with a group of students who entered the VT knowledge works competition and made a app called Eufolio. And it was like, like a portfolio of stuff you had done basically, like as the name implies. So it was like kind of like LinkedIn where like you could connect with people and like, you know, show what you had worked on, that kind of stuff. But I just worked on that for like maybe a year off and on. It was in Angular. Mm. My first, I can't remember if this came first or if my like, actually getting paid for web work came first. So I think they may have overlapped some because I think we started doing like PHP with Eufolio. And like, that's what I had done. Oh, I even forgot. This might not even be on my LinkedIn or maybe it is. <laughs> but I also worked for, I'm <laughs> just remembering now, I worked for a software technologies lab, which was a place on campus or kind of like there's a kind of on campus, like big research park that it was in. And it was just like a bunch of students that got hired by this, you know, group of people that coded so they could get work done for cheap, basically. Right. Yeah. Like, so of course, uh, lots yeah. brilliant model to a degree. Right. But I'm wondering, you are doing a bunch of Java projects. So was PHP essentially your bridge to JavaScript? Yeah. Yeah. So it, I had totally forgot about, uh, we'll abbreviate software technologies lab is STL. Uh, I forgot about STL until just now, like, you know, going through my brain, but, but yeah, so we did PHP there. And after doing some PHP for a while, like somebody threw in 
uh, prototype JS, like oh the, yes, the opposite, of, like the competitor to jQuery, I guess. Yeah, it's prototype, Moo tools, and jQuery were the big. Yeah, so we were using prototype, and of course, because everyone used jQuery, like you would look up stuff to do and be like, "Oh, this is awesome! I can do this thing." And then it's like, "No, you can't," because we're using prototype. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah got got into that and um that was like the first time i remember like learning about asynchronous code because everything in like java and c is like you have some recursion and like stuff that messes with your brain but like nothing that's like call this thing and like you know wait for a while and then like call this other thing <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. so we had i think we were still in like everything was callbacks so it was just like you know you would nest 16 callbacks and like it was really gross and I really never understood what Ajax was or like how any of it worked. I was like, you know, you just have to nest a bunch of callbacks and it does things. Eventually what you want comes out in the end. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked there for maybe, maybe like a year actually. And then I worked uh, at a startup called MailPilot, which was pretty cool. Um, They were my first introduction to Ember. I remember at the time I was like, not that into Ember. I was like, you know, Angular is clearly the better framework. Like, look at the really sexy Angular docs on the Google site. Like, this mm-hmm. is so cool. But, you know, it was usable. And I so the MailPilot was like, like all of the email apps we have these days, that's like a to-do list where you check stuff off or like snooze it or whatever. It was like the first one of those, I think. There may have been others like in the works, but they did like a Kickstarter and we're like, hey, email sucks. Like, we want to make it like work like this. And they got a bunch of money to like build an app. So that's what I worked on for probably like six months. I don't know. I don't know how long I was there. It was pretty cool and learned a lot of Ember. The app itself looked really bad. Like, because I kind of remember what it looks like now, look, comparing it to like websites today, it, it looked terrible. But at the time, it was cutting edge. It looked awesome. So I was super excited, like, you know, getting to work on a startup and being one of like two developers that were working on it, basically. How did like that opportunity arise? And like, what was the interview process like? Yeah, I think they emailed like the CS department listserv and were like, hey, anybody want to work on something? And (laughs) I was like, okay. And so like, it was super informal. They like didn't have an office at the time, I guess. So they were like, "Hey, meet us at Starbucks." And we like went to Starbucks and sat outside and like I think they asked me a few basic questions, like nothing web specific because I think they were kind of looking for like anyone that was willing to learn, not like you know this already. Mm-hmm. Um so they were more like, you know, generic programming questions or like stuff about me, I guess. I I forget the exact questioning. But I remember afterwards being like, I did not do well at that. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to get this. Right. And then I did. So either they interviewed no one else or I did better than I thought. That's funny. Yeah. Sometimes that's the happenstance of it all, I guess. Then after that, after I graduated, well, I guess before graduating, I'm giving lots of info. So feel free to stop me at any point and, and make it more interesting. But <laughs> I they had like on campus interviews for lots of companies, uh, one of which was Red Hat Consulting, uh, which is where I ended up working. Um, but I interviewed several places, like you know everyone interviewed for Microsoft and Amazon and and all these different things. And one of I forget I think it was Amazon was like here's this giant block of like I don't know 500 characters, like no spacing, just you know, lines of characters. And they were like, how would you write a function to find the longest string that's most commonly occurring or something like, you know, if there's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and that occurs like 10 times, how do you find that versus like A, B, C, D or whatever? And my brain was like, hey, this is whiteboarding. It's stupid. No, I can't do this. Hmm. So I didn't, I didn't never got any of those. Like if anyone was like, Oh, write a sorting algorithm. I'm just like, look, I'll try it, but no, there's no way I'm like getting this right on the whiteboard. So for anyone interviewing right now, like if anyone asks you to whiteboard, don't feel bad. Just being like, no, like I'll, I'll gladly code you anything you want, but I'm not going to whiteboard. Right. Right. And I think it's an interesting point in terms of 
probably the majority of like real life circumstances. Um, I mean, like day trading applications or something crazy like that might require some deeper learning in that way of mathematics or like sorting and breakdowns and all that. But most regular interfaces don't really require it. That kind of logic. Yeah. You know, the business logic is straightforward and it's pretty easy. I have used zero algorithms, zero calculus, zero uh, combinatorics, zero linear algebra, zero differential equations. <laughs> like all this stuff I had to learn because it was like an engineering degree. And, you know, they, they want you to do, they don't get as complicated as like implement differential equations, but like, yeah, most of it you don't need. Yeah. I, uh, I used combinatorics once, one time. One time in 18 I years. remember. Yeah. Yeah. You were like, like, hey, what do you know about combinatorics? And I was like, wait, really? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah. Anyway, we got there. I, uh, I think my proudest moment whiteboarding was like, I went to, I forget what this place was. It was a government contractor, but I was interviewing there and um, I implemented Dijkstra's algorithm on a whiteboard, like for finding the shortest path to a thing. And I was just like, that could not have gone better. Like I should just never whiteboard again. (laughs) (laughs) End my career here. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, ever since then, I've not done well with any of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think that I remember there used to be a website like whiteboardingisbad.com or something like that. And it would list companies who whiteboard and those who do not. And then saying like interview on real world skills. I think, um, I think either Lauren Tan wrote that like GitHub repo or was like promoting it. I forget. Uh, Yeah. I don't know if she created it or just helped maintain it, but yeah, I know she was associated. We should have her on the podcast and ask about it. Yes. That would be interesting. (laughs) Um, Just, I just want to hear just about that. And what are your feelings now? Yeah. How do you feel about this? All right. See ya. (laughs) When you set up your story, when you said like my, the best, I've ever done at whiteboarding. I really was hoping that it would, the apex of that story was going to be, you just walked up to the whiteboard and wrote, nope, set down the <laughs> marker and, and walk out. No, I was never so bold, but I did like when there were things that I couldn't do, I would straight up tell people like, Hey, this is unreasonable. Like I'm willing to try it, but I'm not going to get it. So I mean, you can like see how I work through the problem, but there's no way I'm going to like, write a sorting algorithm up here real quick. Like yeah. those exist and are performant already. Like I don't need to know how to do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you have a real problem with sorting. Yeah. Rock. No, just, just remembering algorithms. So like, all right, sort this. And then it's like, okay, what's the most performant? Like I know bubble sort is not the most performant, but that's the one I kind of remember how to do. So like, let me do that one. And like, it's just such a, the question should be like, you know, I want you to sort this, but use Google to find what the most efficient one is and like how to implement it and then show us because right. I could do that. Yeah. But. Yeah. You know <laughs> how to find the answer. You understand the explanation of the answer. And I think that those are qualities as well. Yeah. I mean, I think all of computer science boils down to like understanding the big O notation of like the thing you're doing. That's it. Like yeah. if you know what's most efficient, you can look up how to do it. That's fine. Unless you want to invent the next big thing, right? If you had invented a blockchain or you invented, <laughs> you know, like something like that, then, you know, it's a different level. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's the factory worker and there's the person who creates the mechanics of the factory. Yeah. I'm, I've never been one to be visionary and know like the next thing to make. So I've worked at lots and lots of places, which, uh, yeah, so at Red Hat, I was doing Java again, and it was interesting because, you know, a lot of people knew of Red Hat from like Linux and the like Fedora and their enterprise Linux stuff and all that. So people had heard of it and like were confused about what I was doing because like people don't really know they have a consulting division, which specializes in nothing, by the way. <laughs> like if they're like, I need you to build me, I don't know, like a cat.js app they're like oh we have 25 experts in that here you go these guys are like the best cat js experts and then 
they sell a multi-million dollar contract and go, okay, you 20 guys learn cat JS in the next two weeks. <laughs> like, mm. I guess I shouldn't put them that much on blast. Like there, there are a lot of people <laughs> that know what they're doing. And like, it comes back to my approach to like hiring anyone. You hire good people who want to learn things and like, will do well and they'll do well at any technology. So it's not like they were actually like throwing crappy developers at something. It was just that they were marketing it aggressively, like that they were all experts when they weren't experts just yet, but maybe were at least mid-level by the time they started the project. Right. Proficient at that point. And then, yeah, but we, uh, we did a lot of work, uh, in .NET with Geico, which was a soul sucking job because it's one of the only places, maybe the only place that I've ever worked where you had to swipe in and out of the building. Mm. Like they're tracking, oh my God, you stayed outside for 10 minutes longer than you were supposed to. You got to like stay at work longer. And I was like, really? Like, is it that bad that you need to, like, you guys have nice fun commercials and you have this terrible of a corporate environment. So yeah, that's where consultants went to die. Like they would all be like, I hate this and quit working there, which is what happened with me. (laughs) (laughs) You followed the crowd in that. Yeah. Like, you know, I was like, okay, I did all this fun stuff like at a couple of startups in school. And like, I know there's more fun stuff out there, so I don't need to stay here. And they were like, oh, oops. Like, can we give you more money to stay? And I was like, absolutely not. Like I'm (laughs) leaving Mm -hmm. to do anything else. Um, So then I went to a startup called Netuitive which I guess still exists ish. So like Netuitive became metrically, which I think got bought by someone. So like maybe there's still something I wrote somewhere out there, but when I worked there, it was Netuitive and it was your classic like startup that didn't exactly know what they were doing. Like they had some really proprietary code that like was really performant for like some kind of backendy thing. Uh, and I forget exactly what it was, but the, the gist of the app was like, I think you could, it was for banks and it was for like checking, like if everything was running correct or if you were getting attacked or something, I think I forget. Okay. Not really important. I, I used Ember there. Did you pick it? No, it was, it was already there. Um, so the, the main developer, I guess was a guy named Josh and he and another guy named Roger um, who I still talk to a good bit today. Um, he was our manager and, uh, he was basically like, you know, learn whatever you want. And that's like fun. And you think we'll give you a good job later. He's like, my job is not to make netuitive money. It's to like, make sure you guys are prepared in case like you need another job. Like, you know, what if your next job needs coffee script and you don't know it? Like, I would hate for that to be the case. So like learn things you're interested in and like, you know, apply those to our code base and like, you know, everyone will get better basically. Uh, so it was a really great environment. And after a few months, uh, they, I forget how they, or if they even announced anything like we were, I was just work. Oh yeah. They, they sent an email. I think it was like a Wednesday. So they sent an email out and they were like, Hey, we've had some funding issues. Like there's going to be some layoffs or like something like that. And I was like, well, like, I don't want to sit here and dwell on like whether I'm getting laid off or not. Like I'm just going to do some work. So I like started like coding some stuff and like tried to log in to like Jira or something. And it was like, you can't log in. And I was like, well, I'm getting laid off. (laughs) And, and it was fun because like we had a big group of people that were starting to amass that were like, you know, okay, who's getting laid off? Who's not? And I was like, I figured it out. Try to log into like these services. And like everyone was locked out except for Josh, like the main developer. He was oh, able wow. to log in. <laughs> wow. And so, yeah, they, they laid off like VP of engineering. Like, uh, I think like basically anyone that wasn't C-level was gone. And like Josh got to stay and Roger got to stay. And they were like the development team. And like everyone else, they laid off like 75% of the company. Wow. Like... It was bad. So that was fun. I remember I like, I left for work and I got back home at like 11 a.m. And like Caitlin was there and she was like, what? Like you're (laughs) home at 11 a.m.? And I was like, 
um, about that. Yeah, yeah, I got laid off, <laughs> but they gave me two weeks of pay, which is not a lot, but like better than zero. Mm-hmm. And within that two weeks, I got another job. So like it all worked out. It's like a paid vacation ish. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was not bad. I mean, it was stressful for a few days and then it wasn't that bad anymore. So then what was the next job? Yeah, it's I had to write them all down because I, I forgot. Um, but so the next one was Barico and or Barico Technologies. Uh, they were a government contractor. Um, okay. We built like a map app thing. It was like a search engine where you could like visualize where documents were or like not doc, like um, it's it was for like correlating like, OK, here's this area on the map. And like, here's this document that talks about like terror activity or something. And like, how do I map these together and like find the like overlaps of like these points are probably like points of interest for like terrorism or like different stuff. Yeah. And it was all in Ember and we had to do, which, which was interesting because it's government contracting and you wouldn't expect they would want Ember. And they had to physically like, Every time we made changes to the app, they had to burn it to a CD Oof. and take it to the sock and like put it in and like download it. So like if there was a bug or something, they do all that and like they log in and it's like, you know, JavaScript error or whatever. Oh, gosh. Then you have to. <laughs> so it was a really tough environment to like, you know, it, the feedback loop was tough because like as us being not users of the app and developing it all in Chrome and like not having access to the environment they were in. We're like, it all works. And then like they use it on like IE6 and it's like, it doesn't work anymore. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we had, we had like six laptops set up for like every version of IE and like Firefox and Chrome and like all the different stuff. And uh, we had to do all that. And you had your own test lab. Yeah. I think most of what we did was leaflet and like Esri mapping stuff, which like I have no idea how to use anymore. Mm. I'm sure you're happy to forget. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but that was actually where I like started falling in love with Ember really, because like they paid for us to go to my first Ember conf and like, that was just super fun. Like getting to see all these people that are contributing to Ember, like that they're real people and are there. Like they just seem so important and fancy and like you would never talk to them when you see them online. But uh, that was my first open source stuff too, I think, was like, that's where I wrote Ember Shepherd because um, we had a tour that like went through our, our app there. So it was showing you how to use stuff. And uh, that was my first like big PR into a project because I did a PR into Shepherd that was writing the before show promise stuff. And they accepted it and merged it in and it had like, you know, six or 7,000 stars at the time. So I was mm. like... Wow, like my code is in a real thing. Yeah, the OGs of Shepard, HubSpot. Yeah, HubSpot comes up a lot, and I feel bad for not using their products because they graciously gave us Shepard and Tether. But like every, like I was looking up stuff to make a a newsletter, and they mm. have like a platform for doing a newsletter. But I was like, eh, like it's just I don't know. Their stuff is expensive and not as sexy as some of the other ones. Right. Uh, yeah. The expense is, is definitely one big part of it. And the other part is that we're still on the ground doing client work and, uh, you know, we can't dedicate ourselves to like sales and marketing efforts necessarily. So if you're like piecemealing some stuff together and paying a giant bill, it feels like, oh, I can't effectively use your tool. There's nothing wrong with your tool. But I can't really effectively use it. And then new players on the block are willing to like make deals and make it like the barrier to entry on that as just a partial user a lot easier. So nothing wrong with you HubSpot, but if we ever make it big, maybe we'll come back. (laughs) Yeah. Conversely about like you just your time in your career then. So like you went to your first EmberConf, got blown away by you you had a rock star experience in a way, right? These people that are working on this tool that was so effective for you. And then you were like, Oh, So did you not cross any of those? Like, did you not introduce yourself to anyone there? Were you just kind of an observer at that EmberConf? Like, what what was the next step in your Ember career? I don't think I talked to anyone big. 
or big at the time. I think I talked to some of the people from Adapar, which is where Chris Garrett, uh, Zarek was working. Well, yeah, he was on the podcast before you've, you've met him. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to him, I think like before he started being like the one that basically wrote all of glimmer, but like, you know, I talked to like lower level players, like people that wrote some add-ons or like, you know, whatever. And I, but mostly I was hanging out with the Barrico guys and like, you know, doing team building stuff, like going to dinners and whatnot. So yeah, I, I didn't do a ton then, but I just remember like, you know, seeing people like locks on like Slack being like basically a Slack bot of like Ember knowledge and like how helpful they were and like all the stuff they were working on. And I was like, I really want that. So like when I got back, I think um, I had written that Ember Shepherd add on. I wrote a few more, I think like Ember X editable, which basically doesn't work with modern Ember, but it's still there. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of got addicted to it. Like, I've always been the kind of person that can like, like the kind of games I like are like really grindy games, like, mm. like Diablo or destiny or like where it's like you play for 10 hours trying to get like one piece of loot. So it's like a job like to play. Okay. So like checking the boxes of like, I did it right. And I got the thing like, like, you know, instant feedback loop. Like that's the kind of stuff I like. So open source is similar. It's like, you know, you, find something that's broken, you fix it, you open a PR, you get it merged, like same kind of feedback loop. So I've gotten kind of addicted to that and like seeing my GitHub stats go up. So like, yeah, it just spiraled out of control at that point. Like, <laughs> right. I think uh, it actually took a dive again. Like, I don't know, I have to look through my, my history, but like, so when I left Barico, I went to Jibe, which was a startup in DC because like I just wanted something really fun, like, you know, drink beer at meetings, like have ping pong battles, like, you know, that kind of stuff. Stereotypical startup. Yeah. Yeah. At that time, at least. Yeah. And they had a second office in New York. So like we would get to do trips to New York and, you know, stay up there for free and do a bunch of fun stuff. So like super fun time, but they were unfortunately using Angular. So like I would do like free time Ember add-on maintenance but like not too much dedicated Ember time because I was in the Angular world. And I, at that point, like I had, you know, loved Ember enough, but I was just like, I don't know. I, I guess I wasn't a hundred percent sold on it being like vastly superior to everything else. I was kind of just like, you know, all these frameworks are pretty good. Like Angular is very similar. Uh, it has a couple of different syntax things, but like at the end of the day, everything I think at this point was still like two-way binding. Like no one had really thought about making everything one way and like, I don't know, just changing the way it worked. It was all just like update this, everything updates. Like we're updating everywhere, inject as many services as you want, do whatever. So, so like with that in mind, they were fairly similar, like ideologically. And I wasn't really feeling the hurt until like I tried, like until I encountered issues and found that like the angular communities were just, so terrible because they're like you know hundreds of thousands of people on like slack you know most of them being like grumpy not caring about other people developers who just want stuff to work and hate their jobs and are like you're like hey i have this problem in Ang angular like can you help me and they're like oh just make it work like you know you suck you're not a good developer like whereas <laughs> in the ember community like everyone would like stop what they were doing to like really help you through the problem and like make you understand it and help you be part of the community. So it was just like hands down better. And like, as I started to realize that I was like, I don't want to do angular anymore. So I started looking for Ember jobs and ended up at uh, RSA where things just continue to grow. Like we started doing the Ember meetups then and like went to some more Ember comps I don't know at what point I actually like started working with the Ember learning team, but sometime around then. And so, yeah, I started like working with them for, I worked with them for like a year before I was like officially on the team. So I was like doing lots of, lots of stuff with uh, Chris Manson who we had on two episodes ago. Like we were doing a lot Not of related to Charles, by the way, not related. <laughs> yeah. Um, we did a lot of like Primber stuff, like pre-rendering and like 
static sites and fast food and all that. We were like working on all of that for a long time. And then one of the learning team people was like, Hey, um, we need someone to like work on Ember inspector. Like, do you want to do that? And I was like, sure. Like I know nothing about it, but I work on it. Um, so I kind of got pulled into that and I've been working on that for a long time. It's currently broken, uh, which <laughs> is fun. <laughs> I keep getting the same bug report and I just keep closing it as a duplicate. <laughs> but um, mm. there, there's not enough people that like understand it to, to fix it. And I'm getting this error that you can't reproduce locally. So I have no idea what to do. And I keep asking for help and there's just not enough people for all the problems we have right now. So, but yeah, like running the meetup and, and all that has been, was pretty fun. Um, you helped with that for the first, I don't know, however many months until you moved. Yeah. So like, uh, I was, well, we basically like kickstarted it back. So Steven and I were like, Oh, there's this thing, but it, it's kind of died off. So let's kickstart it. So we started hosting it and getting people involved and you got involved in the event and we hosted it out at the RSA. Well, the first time for me, I know you did a few more times afterwards after I moved, but uh, yeah, just anyone using Ember within DC, you're like trying to encourage other places to, to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. I should probably start that again, but I just don't know when the right time is like, obviously COVID is, endemic now and like we're not getting any better or worse really so i guess we could start them again but yeah. i just don't want to be the guy that's like i hosted an event and everyone got sick you know yeah yeah you don't want to be like the i don't know i don't know what virtual events look like these days but anyway that's probably a tangent to yeah. another but yeah i guess um at rsa we uh what did we use some weird stuff uh weird's maybe not the right word uh, some people liked it, but it was um, like Ember Redux stuff, mm, yeah. like getting rid of Ember data and like basically embracing a lot of React things, but using Ember as your like main framework, which to me just feels like, why not just pick React? Like, yeah. I don't know. It was kind of weird because we would spend a lot of time, you know, trying to both teach other developers Ember, but then be like, okay, but all the stuff you learn doesn't really apply because like we're doing this all differently. So they were very confused on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing because it's like, oh, your, your state management is just a reducer instead of having like an in-browser ORM, which I feel like Ember data is a little more like, yeah, it's an interesting, like, oh, shift paradigms completely in order to embrace this one part of the pattern versus something else altogether. I mean, that brings about one side question there in, in terms of like Orbit, dealing with Ember Orbit. So Orbit is a standalone library, but also works in the Ember world. And Orbit is a whole different paradigm in managing the data layer on your browser. So is that the same? It's becoming a lot more like that, yeah. So the, the real difference was Orbit started by embracing Ember data and how it worked. So like you had Ember Orbit that gave you a lot of the same, like, okay, you're using Orbit behind the scenes, but you just do like model.save and like model.whatever. And like, it's very much the same as Ember data. But I think what's happened is Orbit itself has become so complex that like those layers of abstraction are just getting in the way of like actually using things. So now it is very, you have to write a lot of code and like be very explicit about what you're doing. So it's like, you know, instead of just, okay, I changed this stuff, save my model. You got to be like, here's all these transactions that change all these things on this model. That way I make sure that if I want to undo any of them, I can, and like that everything is nice and synced up. So it's, it's different, but it is cumbersome the same way that Ember Redux was just because people that are used to the Ember paradigms can't immediately pick it up. But at least the benefits seem a little bit different. Either like, okay, you have a simplified state model versus data, Ember data, while Orbit gives you the benefits of history. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see any benefits to Redux myself, but maybe that's just me. I mean, in the Ember world, I don't really see the benefits of it. I understood what it brought to the react world but i mean 
obviously in that sense, like React doesn't know anything about state and memory and data and that stuff. It just knows render thing. And then you bring something else to it. So, you know, having like a happy player in the, my application globally has a state that I can look into at different times. Like that's, that's fine. That's fine. That seems like a win, but yeah. But yeah, I guess that brings us to like 2017 or 18, mm-hmm. whenever I quit to do ShipShape full time. I don't think that's going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, there were a lot of times and you've been around for some of them where I've just been like, all right, let's just stop and like go back and get real jobs. Cause like we don't have enough money and like, we'll just stop doing this, but yeah. it always works out. Like, you know, and we continue to grow and you just have to trust that it's going to work out and save a little bit of extra money for the couple months where you might not be getting paid. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. The world of a consultant is definitely one of potential high risk, high reward, but you know, you're a master of your own domain there. And then a little bit of luck along the way for sure. And knowing people. Yeah. Yeah. Network matters. I think, I think like coming straight out of college and trying to become a consultancy is, it's a pretty difficult road to yeah. go down and doing it later in your career is, it's highly beneficial. Yeah. And you know yeah. what you set out, you started ShipShape as an Ember consultancy hasn't yeah, completely yeah. worked out that way. I mean, it still is that <laughs> it is still is that, but you know, yeah. uh, the demands of the industry and our business and what's happening in the world has changed things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I just decided to make the jump. Cause I was like, I think I was reading. So, well, so backing up a bit, I was doing side work like as ship shape for a while. And, uh, I was like reading things about consulting and like, you know, freelancing and whatever. And someone had said like, you know, if you don't have any kids yet and like, you know, like if you can afford to fail, like just go for it. And I was like, okay, I definitely can afford to fail right now. So like if I need to run back to RSA, like they would probably take me back. So like, I'll just be like, all right, I'm going to try it. And I guess I can't even remember now what, I guess Mariana was my first full-time client. How did I even get like, did you hook me up with that? Like, how did I get in there? Uh, yeah, I think it was kind of on the heels of me leaving and them just needing more uh, dev work. And you were talking about doing that. And so we had connections there. So we just kind of put that together. Yeah. And I mean, that was great because it gave me what I needed to like jump off and have other clients and stuff. And yeah, I ended up working for... um the guy I mentioned earlier, Roger from Netuitive, he works at Expel. I worked there for like a year and a half. Um, you know, just knowing people from the Ember community that work at places, you'd be surprised like how often that is all you need to like get your foot in the door. Yeah, absolutely. I think network plays a big part in all kinds of things. And even with clients that uh, we don't have like a past with, but knowing that like we work with people that we have worked with before and had successes and all of that, that's sort of like our big thing with our agency is we don't fill it up with 30 sometimes arbitrary engineers. We pretty much know and have worked with everyone that we work with. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It makes a big difference, you know, and, and like I mentioned the, the types of people earlier, like that if you find people that kind of want to succeed and, and work hard, you're, you're set. That's kind of all you need. And like, they'll learn anything. And, and that's great. Even Robbie's going to learn react. Well, so, I mean, we won't discuss publicly, but, uh, we do need to figure out if we want to use, well, if, if we work with this guy on this app we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, do need to pick if it's like react, if it is, if it's next or Redwood, or if we want to do like a Svelte kit or, Really anything, honestly, Ember is the only thing that doesn't work well because it won't enter, it won't work easily with GraphQL, although there are add-ons for it, so we could try it, but I just feel like it's a good time to try something like Redwood or SvelteKit. Yeah. I think that's the only part of your career we've not really touched on is like times that maybe you've had to reach for or were involved in a React-based project, how that affected your opinions on it. I have stayed away with a 40 foot pole touching any react code, not because 
it's bad or because I disagree with like some of the things it does, but because it's just like, I feel like there's not a lot of people that understand why it's good. Right. Like you keep hearing about it being the hotness and Facebook made it and like, you know, it's, you got to use it and it's like, okay, well one, it doesn't do anything. It's just the view layer. So like I need to bolt on a bunch of stuff and like, you know, that's what really got me upset. Cause I'm like, I can just install Ember and I'm ready to go. Whereas now, like, you know, with things like next or Redwood, you can do the same thing with react. So like that kind of squashes my complaints, but, um, yeah, the only real react or it wasn't even react. I guess I wrote preact in shepherd. Mm. So we rewrote shepherd and preact because it was like the, it was smaller than react. We wanted to be really small, but then ultimately rewrote that in Svelte because it was even smaller. So best tool for the job, right? Yeah. And I guess that about puts us at time. I have rambled for a long time to where my throat is hoarse and mm. I need to get off of here. <laughs> so perfect. Yeah. So the whatnot is don't talk for too long. It'll hurt your throat. Yeah. You'll have to have an additional whiskey to make you feel better. <laughs> we'll be doing Chuck's origin story next week, probably. And or talking about NFTs, which you will hear us talk about many, many times because we keep buying them and we'll tell you more about it later, but it's not yeah. going away. Yeah, <laughs> it's not going away. It doesn't make any sense either. No. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I think we have some things to tell you to subscribe now, but if you're listening, subscribe, please in your Apple or Spotify or whatever. And uh, catch you later. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.